This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning to gardeners that like growing things a little bit different. Rare plants, rare fruits, because that's going to be our topic this morning. Okay. Uh, what, what, what does it mean when we know that there is 39 degrees coming, John? 39 degrees to me is a, a heat spike, and a heat spike is usually sort of only one day. It might be two days, but uh, it's very, very distinct from a heat wave. Um, so a heat spike, you might have 40 degrees for one day or two days, whereas a heat wave, you're going to have 40 degrees extended over at least three or four days. And from a gardening point of view, very different because a plant can stake one heat spike uh, and uh, if you've got a nice healthy plant and it's well watered and many people will be out watering their gardens at the moment and we'll have a little heat spike and the plants will say, oh, well, uh, mm-hmm. that was interesting, but it won't affect them. Whereas if it was a heat spike, during uh, the day they get uh, maybe stressed a little, but at night time they've got time to recover and very often when you get the waves you get warm nights as well and so it's the heat days and heat nights that cause so much problems in a heat wave, whereas a heat spike, at least the plants have got to be able to uh, mm. recover at the night time. So there is a significant difference. Our main guest this morning, very, very shortly, will be Joe from Joe's Connected Garden, and he will be talking about the rare plants that are uh, being grown, uh, the fruits and the veggies that are being grown at this uh, garden. But the important thing is, of course, it's open this weekend. Mm. Which is a great opportunity and great weather to do so. So one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Actually, a question that was put to me during the week, John, which I wanted to ask you about, and it's one that's relevant to me as well because I have one of these. What do you do with crab apples? Crab you know, apples. The, the actual fruit from crab apples. What do you do with it? You make jelly out of really? it. Really? If you're a well, grandma, used to. Uh, <laughs> 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 I suspect we don't now. Um, and uh, if you leave them there long enough, the birds will say thank you very much anyway. As uh, will my corgi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Isn't it fascinating how they know uh, uh, the first thing they do in the morning is mm. go around underneath the tree and pick up all the things that are dropped. Yes. But uh, you need to also watch your crab apples. They can get codlin moth the same as your ordinary apple tree. And uh, you might find that uh, you've got your apple trees and, and you, you enjoyed the harvest and you picked up the windfalls and then your crab apples fall to the ground and they've got little uh, spikes, uh, got little grubs in them and the grubs overwinter, they, uh, they come out and then they hide and they, they overwinter uh, and then come out next spring. So it's important to pick up the windfalls from your crab apples just as important as it is to pick up your <gasps> apples and pears uh, if they fall on the Good ground. Good to know because, as I say, the dog takes care of them at the moment. <laughs> well, well, the other thing, that's right, if the yeah. dog cleans them up, it yeah. solves the problem. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Uh, let's take some calls if we can. Can one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number to call if you'd like to put a question to John Lamb. Roz is in Unley. Hello, Roz. Hello there. Tell us your problem there, Roz. Um, a star jasmine. I bought this house about a year and a half ago, and um, so I've inherited it. And there are lots of healthy green leaves at the front of it, the facade of it. But behind it is a mass of small woody branches and the whole thing is weighing down the structure that it's growing on. 
So I'm wondering how much I can cut it back. Well, you can cut it back quite hard and it will cover. Presumably it's been growing there for some time? I assume so because I've only been in this house a year and a half and I think it's probably been there for years. Right. Is it in... Years, a long time. How much... uh, Is it in full sun or part shade or full shade? Uh, Part shade. All right. Well, um, you can cut it back very, very hard and early autumn is an ideal time to do it. You'll get your best flowers from your star jasmine in that uh, mid to late spring period. So if you leave your pruning back too uh, long, say if you do it at the end of autumn or maybe early winter you're going to reduce your flowers considerably so but and the only thing is if you i mean you can cut it back quite hard and, and you'll find if it's a healthy plant with a healthy root system it'll respond very very quickly um, it'll probably give you lots of vigorous growth and you may not get uh, the full lot of flowers that you've been getting in the past but um, if you want to reshape it i would certainly be looking at uh, the branches and, and or the stems and if you can uh, say right oh look there's an old stem that's been there for a long time. Cut that off and pull that out of the system. Anything that's got a, a nice new kind of a stem or a runner, you try and leave that. Um, but uh, whatever you do, you cut it back, it'll recover. Even cutting it back so that there are no leaves on it? I wouldn't do it that far, no. <laughs> you, uh, well, you... it's, that's the thing, that, because all the leaves are right at the front and they don't go back very far at all, so you can't actually remove much unless you remove all the leaves. Well, what I'd be doing is saying I'm going to uh, try and uh, regenerate this plant. Now would be the time to give it a really good soaking, particularly with a hot weekend coming up and uh, when you're watering you've got a you're convinced the soil is nice and moist i would be coming in with a fertilizer probably a quick acting fertilizer something like thrive or something like that it's it's a foliar fertilizer but if you put it into the root system it'll whack it work very very quickly what you need to do is is stimulate the root system as much as you possibly can don't go overford uh, overboard use the right amount uh, that's on the uh, uh, directions but water that into the root system it's nice and moist that should stimulate the plant but don't do your pruning until we get into maybe the middle of March early or middle of March so what you're doing is you're stimulating the root system now and when you cut it back in March early March it's ready to go and it will come away and if you can cut it you can you'll cut it back very very hard uh, try and leave as many uh, nice leaves as you possibly can, but if there's no leaves there, so be it. You cut it back, it will come into new growth. As it does so, try and uh, uh, direct those so that uh, you get the nice kind of a shape that you're looking for, and you'll find that in springtime it ha- should have a new canopy of green, but you mightn't get as many flowers as you expected. I'm not worried about the flowers. Okay. I really want to try and remove the right massive right. Well, think, okay. think not, growth at sure. the back the impor- behind the... Okay. Yeah. The important thing, Ros, is think not just of the canopy, you're cutting back the canopy, but think also of the roots. The roots are going to, are going to have to do the work. So stimulate the roots before you cut. All right. Ros, good luck with that. Thank you. It's a quarter past eight. You're listening to ABC Radio Adelaide. Talk back gardening with John Lamb. Uh, we're talking about rare fruit. Dragon fruit are both unusual and well suited to our summer, so thank you. Ah, well, they're one of the fruits, one of the many, many fruits that uh, is being grown by Joe and his friends at Joe's Connected Garden. So we 
might put in a plug for a dragon fruit. Dragon fruit. Uh, yes. Okay. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We have some lines free right now. Robin is on the phone from Colonel Light Gardens. Hello, Robin. Good morning, Spence, and good morning, John. Um, yes, my question, John, is um, I'm trying to be a little bit ambitious, I think, by growing some tomato seedlings quite late in the season. Um, they're only about oh, two inches tall in the old measurements, um, but I've got them under grow lights inside. Um, and my question is really, is it detrimental to the plants to keep them under the grow lights for 24 hours a day? Or should I be doing a bit of both? Or I obviously want to push them ahead as quickly as possible. It's an interesting question. And it just so happens that next week we're talking to Matt Coulter, who's the curator of the Adelaide Botanic Gardens, and he propagates hundreds, thousands of plants each year. And uh, he'll be talking in particular about uh, the softwood cuttings that you can grow and the use of mist and the use of fog and uh, striking your cuttings in water and also, I think, your concept of uh, growing them under light. Um, If you look at it from a plant's point of view, they uh, absorb their energy during the day from the sun or, in this case, from your grow light. And then you'll find that uh, at night time, there are things... Things going on within the plant, a redistribution of hormones and things like that. So, uh, having a period of night is just as important to a plant as it is 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 a light, uh, 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 you know, the, the grow light. So, if you can work it so that you've got your mechanism there, it turns on early in the morning and then turns off uh, in the evening. I think you'll probably find you get the best of both worlds. But uh, we can talk in a fair amount of detail to Matt Coulter on that particular issue next week. That would be very, very lovely. Thank you so much for your help. Thank you, Robin, and thank you for your call. Actually, I always get excited if I look at my phone and I see I've got a phone call from Matt Coulter because uh, it usually means that the corpse flower is about to flower. <laughs> he, he has um, he's been very much at the forefront for... Uh, for developing that, the corpse flower here in South Australia. Yes, and they've uh, propagated them. He's worked out a system of propagating, yeah. and he's developed a new method of propagating, of which I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Oh, and that's a very secret He's squirrel. not allowed to talk about it either, oh. which I think is a pity, but there must be some reasons behind that, and it's not for me to ask why. Okay. But uh, we'll be talking about propagation rather than the, the corpse flower next week. Okay. You're listening to ABC Radio Adelaide. This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb, and Sue's on the phone at Allenby Gardens. Hello, Sue. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. What can we do Good. for you? Um, well, I've got an avocado that's probably 12 years old, and last year, or this season, flowered prolifically, but I've got no fruit. So I'm just wondering what I can do to stimulate it to pollinate. Do you know what variety that you've got, sir? No, I don't, because it's a seedling. Well, okay. Well, that being the case, uh, I'd suggest that trying to find a mate for it is difficult. You've got to get uh, plants which are compatible in terms of when they flower, morning and afternoon, and that becomes difficult. You'll find that most avocados, even the seedlings, will self-pollinate. It's just Mm -hmm. if you've got a mate there, you'll probably get better pollination. But uh, you also find that if you try to grow avocados from a seedling, you can wait a long time before you get avocados. 
And mm. the nice thing is after seven or eight years, you're getting flowers. That's the first step. Yeah. The important thing is to get the flowers <laughs> to change uh, so that they hold on to, or they, first of all, form fruits and hold on to those fruits. Uh, mm. So mm. the important thing is don't overstimulate the plant. And that's what actually happens. They're growing so ah. quickly and they're producing lots of new growth. And there's hormones in there for growth, which overwrite the hormones for uh, flowers and fruit. What you've got mm. to do is slow it down. So don't over-fertilise it, um, right. except I would be getting some potash, sulphate of potash. You can buy uh, uh, potash, sulphate of potash uh, as a liquid now and water that into the root system or a powder right. and water that into the root system next time you water. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. I would be, how big's a tree? Uh, it's probably five metres tall now. Ooh! <laughs> I was going to t- suggest that you take the tips out of all the main branches, but <laughs> that's going to be difficult. Um, mm-hmm. But consider um, looking at, at see, ha- so how many tips can you take out of uh, its canopy mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. it means you might have to get on a, a ladder. And, and what we're doing is just taking the tip and maybe the first set of leaves or the first two sets of leaves. But mm-hmm. what you're doing is because the hormones for growth are in the tips. And so if you remove the tips, you're removing the growth hormones, and that allows other hormones to take oh. over. So yep. it, it, it's, it's fiddly, and people sort of mm-hmm. keep on talking about plant hormones. Uh, but if you like growing things, uh, it, it's worth finding out how they grow, and there's more to it than just putting on water and fertiliser. And mm-hmm. uh, if you want uh, avocados, then work, work out why you're not getting your fruit, and then say, well, see if we can't get it, <laughs> slow down the tree, Take some of the hormones out, uh, put a little bit of extra potash in there. Potash is good. Once you've got flowers, uh, to get the flowers to actually set fruit and produce Mm. quality fruit. Many people say, oh, put potash on your plants to make them flower. That doesn't work. They've got to make the flowers (laughs) first. Then if you put the potash on, you'll get better fruits from it. Look, so you you could have chosen an easier fruit to grow, you know. (laughs) 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 That would be the answer, wouldn't it? (laughs) Obviously you're up for the challenge Thank you Sue, all the best It's um, 22 past 8 You're listening to ABC Radio Adelaide Madeline's at Goodwood Hello Madeline Good morning, good morning Um, I have got two mandevillias That that have been growing in a pot One's a nice bright red one And one's uh, a pink one Um, And I'm trying to transfer things out of pots Into the garden Would that cover a fence if I popped it onto if I you know can I put it into the ground how far do you think it might spread on the fence and um, when should I do it? These are relatively new mandevillias? No no they're quite a, I've inherited them from people, one's from a mum and one from another friend, right. so they've been... There are, um, just as an aside, some of the latest mandevillas, the new varieties, are absolutely to die for. Um, there are two types, one that actually produces, uh, uh, grows as a creeper, and there's now uh, one that stays much smaller and compact and it's more of, of bush type, and having a combination of those two, having a creeper uh, up the wall and, and a bush type in front of it is quite spectacular. But we come back to your situation. Um, I, I, I would say they're older because one's in a pot and it's on a frame and it's probably already, well, not my height, so probably about 1.5 metres high or so. Right. So I'd say it's not the bushy one. Right. No, okay, that's right. So the important thing, though, is uh, can you take the pot and, and tip it upside down and have a look at the root system before you do anything? 
that a big um, hard work. Well, it's, it, <laughs> it's a big, like it's a big pot. It's, uh, okay, well, where I'm coming from yeah, is that yeah. a plant that's been in a container for a long time has uh, nowhere to go from a root system point of view. And so uh, having got to the edge of the container, uh, it, it, can go, it can't go out. It has to go round and round and round. And eventually you end up with a root ball, which is root bound. And I suspect if it's been there for some time, uh, when you take it out, it'll be all root-bound. Now, the question mm-hmm. is, how healthy is the plant? If it's in good health, um, if you take uh, your scissors or a sharp bread knife is ideal, and what you've got to do is cut the roots which are going around the root ball off, and you'll find there's a big mass right at the bottom, and you might have to take a centimetre, maybe two centimetres off the bottom. Now, that's removing maybe 60 70% of the, root, of the, of the plant's roots. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is major surgery from a plant's point of view. But that, yeah. if you do that uh, and it's healthy and you put it in and get your timing right and look after it once it goes into the ground, you'll have success. Um, and if you don't, if it doesn't work, go and buy one of the nice new ones I'm talking about. But uh, right. yeah, yeah uh, uh, the important thing is don't do it yet. Wait until no, the hot, hot weather is gone. I'd be suggesting that uh, maybe uh, early March would be a good time. And if it's going to be in the sun at all, it's almost essential in the first week, maybe first two weeks, you put some shade over it. Don't have direct sun going onto the leaves. That sucks the moisture out of the leaves and puts the plant into stress. You don't want that. And so if you prepare your ground properly, put the ground in and then just put an old sheet Ideally, 50% shade cloth would be ideal, but an old sheet over it every day. Put it on around about 10 o'clock in the day when the sun shines off and take it off in the afternoon when the sun's gone. That will make a very significant difference into whether it succeeds or fails. Because, I mean, the mandevilla really needs to have a, a good dose of sun to flower, doesn't it? Oh, yes, yeah. direct sunlights. Yeah. yeah. And the secret with your mandevillias, people growing them in containers, is to, during winter, put them in maximum sun, whereas in sun, uh, summer, um, I've got mine, and, and they only get about two hours of sunlight, uh, but they are in maximum flower. Look, absolutely spectacular. Mm, I wish I could say the same. Mine are a dismal failure, but anyway. Jason Scroop from Poplar Grove Wholesale Nursery, he specialises in them, and I think we need Jason on the program to talk about these new wow ones and how to actually look after them. It's very easy to cut them back at the wrong time. People cut them back early in spring and they don't recover. Getting a timing right is important there, but more about Mandy's later. Um, to Murray Bridge now. Hello, Shirley. Good morning. What's the problem there, Shirley? Uh, I have several big red geraniums that have been flowering well. Now, one bush has all the flowers have become totally green and crinkled and misformed. Oh, no. The leaves closest to the flower heads are also affected and some of the leaves have a broad cream stripe across the green. Um, The leaves much lower down are quite healthy. Oh, goodness gracious. Shirley, how many red geraniums have you got? I've got um, a total of four bushes. Four bushes, and it's only the one that's got the green and the distortion of the flowers? Yes, only one. I'm afraid you're going to... Well, if it was mine, I would remove it immediately and consign it to the green waste bin. 
it's oh, right. it's got a virus and you can't cure a virus. There's no spray or uh, chemical that will control it and bring it back to life again. Um, and the big problem is uh, the virus that is in that plant is moved. Uh, it's in the sap of the plant. And if a sap-sucking insect comes along and has a little suck of that sap and takes it to the geranium next to it, there's a likelihood it also will be affected. So it's pretty oh. important that you get rid of that one. Uh, yes, it is, because I've got one next to it that's a beautiful one. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's just lovely, and it has flowered continuously for 18 years. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Aren't they brilliant? I think the the, the big red yeah. the geraniums, the big pinks and the variations of colours, but they are brilliant plants. They flower for so long, and most people overwater them, and they wonder why they don't grow properly. And so the first thing is don't overwater them. Let the topsoil dry out completely before you rewater them. And many people have got them growing in the, on a courtyard and they've got them in the container in full sun. Now, if you do what I suggest and buy yourself a soil thermometer and put the soil thermometer into your geranium when the uh, temperatures are above 35 degrees, you'll find the temperature in your uh, pot of geraniums is probably up around about 50 degrees and over 40 degrees, if the soil's over 40 degrees, the tips of the plants die. So if you're wondering why your geranium is not growing well in full sun in a, a courtyard, um, then it's probably because it's sitting in the sun and you need to do something about it. Double pot or put the one pot inside another one or put some shading around the, the pot itself so you shade the soil but not the plant, and uh, that will make a big difference. Uh, not good news. Shirley, I'm... I'm sorry, sorry about that, but it looks like you might have to start again with your geraniums. Right on half past eight. Now, John, the thing I love most about this program is it prompts me to look things up. So kiwi berries, uh, which I've had a chance to do. Yes. I'll just read what this is. is kiwi berries are a bite-sized fruit that look like a fusion of kiwi fruit, grapes, and kumquats. The major difference between kiwi berries and kiwi fruit is that the berries are leathery, smooth, and green. Uh, they are good for you too. Kiwi berries are rich in vitamin C and E, naturally low in fat, cholesterol and sodium. Uh, they're also an excellent source of fibre, magnesium and potassium. So there you go, everything you want to know about kiwi fruit. Yes, good reason for growing a kiwi, kiwi berry. berry. Yes, yeah. as I say, they're much easier to grow and uh, certainly the old kiwi, be- uh, kiwi fruits, uh, they can be a little bit vigorous and take over whatever you're trying to grow. Now, Sue from Allenby Gardens showing off here, white sapote. Uh, American pawpaw, three types of guava. Kensington Pride mangoes, wow. Um, no fruit yet, but have established. Custard apples, kakadu plum, dragon fruit, avocado. That's a wonderful collection, wow. yes. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Sue wasn't a member of the Rare Fruit Society. Uh, it's a wonderful little group. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, gardening societies here in South Australia, along with the, the Rose Society. And, of course, Ro, uh, Joe Kylonowski from uh, uh, Joe's Connected Garden, who we'll be talking to very, very, very shortly, of course, is a very, very long and treasured member of the Rare Fruit Society. More on that right after this. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Spence Denny. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
A visit to Joe's Connected Garden is a unique experience. And Joe's Connected Garden is open this weekend. Now, look, we're just having a little trouble with Joe's phone line at the moment, so oh, we'll, no. we'll, we'll, get, we'll get him on the phone again. But as I said before, it's one of those gardens that I've been lucky enough to to experience. Uh, and the, the preparation work that Joe does, all the, the seedlings and pots, they're everywhere. And he creates these sort of microclimates within the garden too. It's very, very clever how they have been working on these different plants. And the nice thing is they can put it in the garden and see what happens. And if it's not the right position, well, then they try a different position. And uh, they have learnt so much about uh, the plants which we have normally not grown here in South Australia, but Mm. uh, as a result of what they're doing. And, of course, that's part of what the Rare Fruit Society is about, is trying things which have got potential or maybe. Maybe they haven't got a big potential, but it's the novelty of being able to grow them and the experience you get in growing them and what you learn. One of the things I'll be doing on the way home today is um, I'll be going via Paynham Road because um, there's a text that's come through that says, please tell John um, to view the two-storey tall mango tree growing on Portrush Road at the John Street corner of Paynham. I didn't. It faces west, is massive, and is literally covered in mangoes. How wonderful. Extraordinary. I wonder, well, I wonder well, if they're commons or Kensington prides. It's one of the fruits that uh, I'm hoping to be able to talk to Joe about is uh, mangoes. Uh, he's uh, an expert on uh, a number of particular fruits. We've often t- spoken to him about figs. But mangoes and guavas is another plant that he likes talking about, and he thinks that that's got a great potential for South Australian gardens, but shortly. Morning, Joe. How are you, mate? I'm all right, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I've got the right name, have I? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's been a couple of years yeah. since our path cross. I came out and saw you and Roseanne, gee, it must be four or five years ago when you were putting up the netting. Oh. What a job that was. <laughs> Yeah, we've got to replace it. It's all full of holes, <laughs> and we're going to put we're going to put it higher at five meters so the branches don't go through. We we have a like two meters growth a year, and it just goes through the net. Yeah. Well, we've been saying Joe's Connected Garden is open this weekend. Before we take a look at uh, some of the fruits that you're growing there and what we can learn from that, Joe, could you just describe what is a connected garden, and if you've got different people with their gardens connected, who decides what to grow, where, and when to harvest? Well, good morning, John. Good morning, Spence. I didn't realise I was on air. That's the nice okay, thing about, um, uh, about Spence. He, he sneaks up to you and just uh, chatting away, <laughs> really, and you realise, oh, goodness, I've committed myself. <laughs> Sorry about that, Joe. <laughs> Indeed. That's all right. Um, so... Uh, the connected gardens, um, we're connected with our neighbours uh, through gates. Uh, there's about 20 gardens connected in three locations. Uh, down here, I'm not sure if there's eight or nine at the moment because uh, people come, people go, houses get sold, gates get closed and opened. Um, and we share and everyone has different rules. So we open five gardens to the public. Uh, the others are not open to the public uh, because the rules are different there. And some gardens you can wander in with guests and some you have to ring and some you get invited. So they're all different, and uh, some gardens, like these five, uh, any of the garden owners can wander into and, uh, uh, yeah, can wander into. Okay. Listen, I often (laughs) talk to people about their open gardens, and then I forget to say, where is the garden? And people send texts and say, where's the garden open? So let's get that in first. Where is your connected garden, and uh, when will it be open? Well, of all places, it's in Elizabeth Grove, and it's open today and tomorrow. 
Um, it's at 6 Argent Street, Elizabeth Grove. There's an entry fee. It's host, It's sponsored by Open Garden South Australia and the gate takings. Uh, I think it's $10 entry for full price and $8 uh, concession card holders. And uh, our share of the gate takings uh, goes towards charities. And this year, I think uh, we're going to be donating it to Hutt Street and the Catherine House and Medicines on Frontier. And I think there's a particular charity that teaches Indigenous people to grow food. Okay, and so that, was, that, that, that. that address was 6 Argent Street, Elizabeth Grove. So let's now take a look at uh, what you're doing. I think uh, there's about 750 different kind of plants, according to uh, the, the information I was sent. Um, and how do you decide what to grow? Ah, well, everyone was growing their own, and we decided not to grow the same things in general because you could always wander in and get the same peach. So we grow different varieties. We have multi-grafted as well. Uh, we grow close plantings. Um, some people, John next door is interested in chilies. Just across the road is interested in herbs. Uh, everyone's got different interests. Roseanne's interested in strawberries and stone fruits and citrus. Uh, I'm interested in subtropicals. Uh, yeah, quite a quite a variety. And apparently, according to Jess, there's over a thousand now across the garden. A thousand varieties of edible plants. Apart from satisfying your curiosity and that of your gardener friends, it is now becoming a, a, almost a, a major educational centre. Uh, yes, uh, we uh, have workshops during the year. Uh, most of them are free or five dollars to cover um, uh, just uh, morning tea and that. Um, some we charge for, but not many. Uh, the schools uh, come through. Uh, some do projects. We have uh, assisted learners come through and did a uh, special project last year before they left school uh, as a work experience thing. We also have Indigenous students come, and uh, there's a group of Indigenous students from Playful International who have been uh, developing an Indigenous food garden out the front of uh, my next-door neighbour, John. And... Uh, they're going to be then taking that knowledge to do the same thing at their high school. Well, let's move on to some of the plants that are being grown. Uh, I want to talk in a fair amount of detail about mangoes and guavas, but uh, a peanut butter tree. What on earth is a peanut butter tree? Uh, it's a tree with a little red fruit that's soft and squishy and goes brown. It tastes like peanut paste. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a subtropical... It's, uh, it, it will actually grow well in a pot, and we've been growing in a pot for 10 years. Um, it prefers its own home climate, but it will grow under my veranda. <laughs> Last time, uh, a couple of years ago, we were talking about a roseberry, uh, and that, I think, got you fairly excited. Just tell us again about a roseberry, and are you just as excited about its potential? Okay. So so this is this is a berry, uh, a, a that's called a rose apple in general um, because I suppose I suppose a lot of fruits are called apples but they're not related. Um, it's uh, related to lily pilly. Uh, it's uh, like a giant calamata in size. Uh, when it's ripe and you, you shake it, the seed rattles, but the fruit is soft. It smells and tastes like rose damask. It is amazing. And it grows really well in Adelaide. And I had the... Um, uh, I was able to see a tree that was uh, mature uh, down, I think, at Camden Park uh, last year uh, in a front yard, and uh, it was loaded with fruit. And so these grow really well in Adelaide, and 
this, one of the seedlings of this tree has been planted in the Botanic Gardens. Okay, we'll come back to the fact that uh, you've now got the botanic gardens on side and a display garden there. And, of course, uh, the plants that we're talking about, you can't whap into your local garden centre and say, can I please have a a roseberry? Um, They presumably, some of them will be available this weekend during your uh, open... Uh, Yeah, we uh, we, we actually germinate a few rose apples, so we've got some this weekend. We've also got guavas and mangoes. Uh, Kensington Pride Mango grows really well. I've been watching that tree on Paynham Road since the 1990s. Really? It's been big ever since then. It's been, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it a Kensington Pride? Uh, I believe it is. I believe it is. Uh, Kensington Pride grow really well here. They grow true to type. They're what's called polyembryonic. When you open up the shell, you find the segments in the seed, and they'll actually form multiple trees. So if you plant a seed, you might get three or four Kensington Pride shoots up, and they're all pretty much the same as the parents. Whereas, and they fruit within three to five years, whereas if you get one of the monoembryonic ones, which is most of the mangoes, uh, it, the seed inside is quite smooth. They'll take many, many years to fruit and it might taste like turpentine. So if you buy a, a mango and enjoy the flavour from uh, a green grocer's and then put the seed in the ground, uh, it's probably not going to give you what you need. Not necessarily. Yes. Only Kensington Pride and R2E2 uh, are the main ones. There's a couple of others, but there's mainly Kensington Pride and R2E2. Mm. And they, they come out even better than the ones you taste because our climate here usually has long, hot, dry summers and they'll uh, fruit in the last week of March, first week of April. And uh, I believe people are growing in the Riverland and sending them to <laughs> up to Brisbane where they sell for $6 each in the Brisbane market. Wow. <laughs> How about that? So um, tell us a bit more about the, the mangoes. Let's drill down on, on that. Uh, okay, most people have a, a perception that a mango grows into a very large tree. If you do want to grow a mango, do you have to have uh, the size tree or is it possible to manipulate it and, and uh, or even maybe grow it in a container? So many of these subtropicals um, are easily pruned to a reasonable size. So mangoes, avocados, you can keep to three metres tall. Just prune them back, let them grow a bit, prune them back, and they'll fruit underneath really nicely. Um, They'll grow in a pot. Avocados won't because they're deep tap-rooted, but mangoes will grow in a pot. Um, What we would suggest is that people grow them in a big pot uh, without a bottom on it. Um, our soil is not conducive to a lot of these subtropicals, but the pots are, and a black pot can stay warm in winter and can cover it over from the summer heat. So, so they'll stay nice and warm in winter and go through into the ground. That's a brilliant concept, and uh, if people doesn't uh, sort of wonder what Joe's saying, you're saying, look, uh, if you uh, put your mango in the ground, there's a chance that it might get wet feet, get overwatered, or put it in a container, it gets too hot. Whereas if you put it in a large container, but the container doesn't have a bottom on it, and do you just plonk the container on top of the soil, or do you bury it into the, yep. into the soil? Well, you just plonk it on top. Well, it can fall over, so I'd, I'd bury it in about 10 centimetres. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, the mango, um, uh, the, the mangoes and a few other sub, uh, subtropicals get a disease called anthracnose, uh, and that's from, as you, as you said, cold, wet feet. Uh, avocados turn up their toes on cold, wet feet, and people often buy avocados and put them in the ground, and uh, the grass drops off or the mango dies, oh, sorry, the avocado dies, and that's because they've got cold, wet feet. How, so, how uh, essential is it? You have to raise it. 
Sorry? Yeah, I've got to say, how essential is it that, uh, that the mangrove is in full sun all day? We put them under, they fruit really well under 50% shade cloth. We find that nearly everything in Adelaide now that fruits in the middle of summer fruits well under 50% shade cloth. I believe in some places with global warming, they're, uh, they're putting everything under uh, shade cloth now, uh, including some major crops. Um, I think in Mexico they use 25% shade cloth for virtually everything that they want to grow mm. the fries. Um, we, um, we find that uh, the fecal fruit under 25% shade cloth, the rose apple definitely does, the mangoes definitely do. Uh, most of my subtropicals, Japotecaba, which is the national fruit of Brazil, that uh, fruits under 20, under 50, so 50% shade cloth is off under 50%. Um, and that shade cloth, is it on just over, say, January, February? Or, or how long do you leave no, the shade cloth on? Per, per, permanent shade cloth. Permanent shade cloth. Permanent right shade cloth, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, guess the trees cut small. I guess the advantage of that also, Joe, is that it keeps the flying foxes away because I know how much flying foxes love mangoes. Oh, okay. <laughs> we never had problems with flying foxes on our mango. Really? <laughs> it's under shade cloth, yeah. yeah. Well, talking of things that fly, birds. How do you protect your plants from birds? You can't. Uh, I've just put a, a display out of a snake uh, saying that blackbirds will learn very quickly that not to be scared of a rubber snake. Um, the only way to protect it is exclusion netting and then really good exclusion netting. We uh, bought exclusion bags to put... Uh, we've got things under net, but we bought exclusion bags to put them uh, over the fruit. Uh, the woven ones, they chewed through. The blackbirds chewed through. And the, um, and the uh, uh, ones that were um, moulded, uh, they lasted a lot longer, but eventually the blackbirds figured out how to untie those. Aren't they smart? But, wow. Okay. But rather than uh, cover the whole tree, you can now go to your garden centre and most of the good garden centres should be selling little packets of uh, uh, individual uh, materials that you put over your fruits. Yep, yep indeed. And uh, they're very useful, but if you have blackbirds or rats, they may not necessarily work. <laughs> uh, I've got a friend who, I think at the Praker Community Garden at Brompton, which is a private community garden uh, in someone's backyard, uh, they um, uh, use uh, split uh, milk cartons, uh, which they put over uh, individual pomegranates, uh, and they uh, get um, uh, larger containers and put them over uh, other fruit, and it seems to work well. They just leave an uh, airflow, uh, a split in it for airflow, and just tape it around the top, and uh, uh, things can't get in. Okay, we're talking with Joe Kalinowski from Joe's Connected Garden and uh, it, you can see from the kind of information Joe's got, there's so much information to be able to uh, share and there'll be a lot of people at the uh, open garden this, today and tomorrow, Joe, that can actually help and, and talk on a one-to-one -one basis. Yes, the Rare Fruit Society members will be here and you'll be able to ask them lots of questions. Uh, we'll have guides and... Uh and volunteers here. What time are you open, Joe? Uh, 10 to 4.30. Okay. Uh, I'm not quite set up yet, but hopefully 10 to 4.30. I've got to clean it up for yeah, yeah. And there's a nuisance <laughs> phone call to take care of first. Oh, indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some, someone asked a question. Where do you get a peanut butter tree? Can you, would they be available uh, at the nursery or not? Uh, not necessarily. You can send away for them. Uh, our, we got ours from a place called Daly's in northern New South Wales. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, there's a number of places that sell things online, but we found that 99% uh, of uh, their, what they send 
uh, works. As long as, it, as long as it's something that's not fully tropical. Many people will ring this program and say, can you grow coffee plants in South Australia? And I can say, yes. I'm not too sure where you can get them. Uh, I've seen them occasionally in garden centres. Just tell us about growing a coffee plant briefly and are you selling them? Uh, we've got two varieties here, K7 and Dwarf Coffee. Uh, so, yeah, we do. I have a, 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 a gold coffee bean, uh, which is... Um, uh, coffee beans are usually red, but this one's uh, gold colour, and that's growing in the ground. And it was a lot taller, and we were going to harvest this year, and uh, somebody dropped the, uh, the the mulching pile on top of it. It was a bit high, and it all fell over on the coffee tree. But they've got a coffee tree growing, and uh, it's about uh, almost I think it's between knee and waist high at the moment. It's in the ground. Uh, it's in a shaded area. We have two across the road in Jess's, which are, I think, two and a half years old, and they're about just... They're almost waist high now. Will they produce um, coffee beans that you can turn oh, yeah. into coffee? Indeed. In our climate here, of course, they can. Yes, yes. Okay, just briefly, um, what's a coffee bean tree look like? Um, it's very leafy, uh, beautiful dark leaves. Uh, the new leaves are, are slightly lighter. Uh, and it's, oh, it's a very leafy, it's a big bush and very leafy. All right, and grow in a courtyard? Uh, it should grow in a courtyard. We've tried to grow them in pots. They just grow high and don't produce beans. Uh, we've never been successful in pots. All right. Uh, yeah. But they are successful in the ground. All right. I we, don't know why. I would also like to talk to you about guavas, um, another plant. You've talked a lot about figs, and I think you've encouraged a lot of people to start growing figs and to prune them properly and prune them to shape. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you're saying the same thing with your mangoes. People think that they grow too big, but if you prune them correctly, you can keep them to the size that you want. Tell us about guavas. Uh, guavas? Um, there are... Oh, yeah. Um, there are two, uh, uh, I suppose, easily distinguished groups of guavas. There's the little cherry guavas, the yellow and the red, and they are more cold tolerant. Then there's the fully tropical guavas, which the leaves go very purple in winter. Um, the tropical guavas are harder to grow here. You've got to really protect them. Uh, we don't sell them until they're about two and a half or three years old because otherwise they'll just die. Um, they've got to be protected. But once they're old enough, they, they do really well. And uh, there are many varieties, different colours. There's the hard green Asian ones, that the Hawaiians, which are yellow on the in in outside and pink on the inside. There's a number of really nice Indian-related ones that are yellow on the outside and white on the inside and very fragrant. And they all grow very well here uh, in Adelaide, and they're quite uh, tolerant of us of all the soil varieties. Um, uh, guavas can be pruned to shape as big or small as you want. And do you and need a very very big sure. uh, red cherry guava? Do you yeah. need uh, uh, another plant for cross pollination? No, they're all self pollinating. They're all self pollinating. And the fruit is, is absolutely really delicious. Uh, yeah, well. Uh, according to taste, there's some people who don't like fragrant fruit. One of my neighbours doesn't like guavas. But otherwise, yes, they're lovely. But okay. she doesn't also like rose apples. All right. <laughs> Spencer, I believe there's a question. Oh, look, yeah, look, we'll, we'll might take a quick call from, from Mal in Pasadena if we can. Also, someone was asking about growing peanuts as well. Peanuts aren't actually a nut, are they? They're actually a legume, aren't they? Yeah, they're a bean. They're an underground tuber. They yeah. should grow in Adelaide. 
Uh, but you've got to really protect them um, because we're a bit cold. So yeah. it, as, as we move towards more uh, subtropical, this should be more, it should be easier to grow. Okay. Uh, look, Mal's been waiting very patiently from Pasadena. G'day, Mal. Good morning to you, John Spencer. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Yeah, we've got uh, four fig trees on our property and uh, getting a, a huge amount of figs here at the moment there. Now, some people have told me that the fig will have two crops a year. Is that correct? Uh, so when you prune them, um, you'll notice on the very tips on some of the varieties, a lot of the varieties, there's like a round uh, fig bud coming out. The round ones are the what they call the breva crop, which grows only on the tips on old wood, and that produces fruit around December. Um, the new wood will produce figs all along the wood uh, right through probably February, March. But we were eating figs in June last year. We actually had a fig tasting uh, up at Virginia. At a, they've got 80 varieties in the ground there, and, uh, and uh, we were doing a fig tasting in June. So they will produce on the new wood. But the important uh, thing is that they can crop. have uh, two crops. But the important thing then is, is if uh, before you start pruning, if you take a look and see there are small branches and there's a little uh, uh, fig at the end of it, that, uh, and if you don't cut it, you'll get an early crop. Whereas those gardeners that like to give their figs a short back and sides will only get one crop. That's correct. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Because I had to give this uh, a real short back and sides because it was just beyond us reaching there the uh, we had a bit of a a, uh, a tally with the the birds and the bats the that they could have the top that we couldn't reach and we, <laughs> we would use the others there because we had lots of bats there uh, last year with them but uh, pruned it back really hard because this tree one of the big trees here is probably we've told about 60 years old and mm. um mm. um but uh, and that's got the green skin to it and the other three trees are the purpley purpley skin here like that. The other question I need to ask here is we've got um, a butternut pumpkins in, uh, plenty of bees, and uh, uh, producing um, a uh, pumpkin, and the pumpkin gets about two or three inches long and then just dies off. Do you care to comment on that one, Joe, or uh, leave I'm, that one I'm to me? I'm not a veggie person. I'm the wrong person. Oh, that's you, okay. <laughs> no, okay. It's, it's pollination problems. And, uh, people that have got kirkovits, whether it's a cucumber or zucchini or a melon, uh, as well as pumpkins, they are producing lots of flowers, particularly male flowers, and not too many female flowers. But uh, uh, when they do set, you'll find that uh, the female flower, the, the little fruit starts to uh, increase and it's growing and you get excited and then all of a sudden it turns yellow and drops off and that's because of poor pollination. We've been looking at uh, talking about day temperatures. Night temperatures are just as important and we've had some very, very cool temperatures. Our overnight temperatures are probably about a degree below average uh, for this time of the year and they've been that way most of uh, uh, spring and summer. So getting uh, warm enough at night time is important and, uh, of course, getting temperatures above... uh, 32 degrees will also affect pollination and if you've got the plants growing too vigorously uh, you'll find that uh, again uh, there's problems there. The best thing you can do is take the tips out of the runners 
and slow the plant down, change the hormone balance within the plant, and that should maybe change the problem. Uh, there's no fungicide or chemical that you can put on the plant to actually make it set fruit. Hey, Joe, you've got a busy day ahead. We're only a couple of minutes away from the news. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Look, I, I know from previous open gardens you've had there, you get a big crowd, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, we do. We do indeed. We get quite a big crowd. <laughs> but we have talks, we have workshops, we have all sorts of things happening on both days. Yeah. yeah. And, and the fact that uh, there are many people interested in growing the rarer fruits with potential here in South Australia, uh, part of the Rare Fruit Society, you've actually got the Botanic Gardens involved and now you've got a display garden at the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. Just where is it and how is it going? So the Rare Fruit Society has, um, uh, with these botanic gardens, have established a um, display garden near the Hackney Road fence. Uh, so if you go to the sensory gardens all the way down the um, the eastern side of the botanic gardens, uh, near the wine centre there, um, along the fence uh, and in that grassed area, there are all sorts of subtropical tr- uh, fruit trees growing. I think they're going to expand it out. A few died and they've got a lot protected at the moment from the sun, but uh, once they establish, it'll be very nice. That's the area where they put the wetlands in, isn't it? They put a little lake in there. Very close like, to yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Right. Around the side of the wetlands. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, Botanic yeah. Gardens are doing some wonderful things, actually combining with the Rose Society, with the Dahlia Society, and uh, they're actually getting involved with the community. It's wonderful to see, and probably we need to talk about that in the program before long. Yeah. Hey, Joe, I mean, the, the tasting the figs event you're at that was a that was a tough gig obviously but it did prompt somebody to text through saying that at a major supermarket they're selling fresh figs at the moment you ready a dollar 50 each Wow. 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 Our, our, bird, our birds are getting a, <laughs> a field day. Gourmet birds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, at some stage, because I was in McLarenvale recently, and behind the pub, there's a Morton Bay fig there, and in, in, uh, in, the, in the Hardy's centre there. And I walked around, I, I don't know, I was going for a walk, my wife's having a toenails done or something. And I went for a walk down there, and I saw this fig, and I thought, wow. And it is one of those trees that just takes your breath away. And I'm told it's actually one of the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. So I think, um, I think I'm, tr- I'm trying to track down Bill Hardy at some stage to talk about that fig tree because it's as old as the pub. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, certainly there's lots of figs to see at uh, Joe's Connected Garden. And just uh, repeating that address, six. Argent Street, Elizabeth Grove, and it'll be open today between 10 and 4.30 and again tomorrow with lots of fruits to see and lots of people to talk to. Lovely. Hey, Joe, thank you, mate. You've been very generous with your time. Okay, take care. Uh, Joe, who was you know, very much at the forefront of, connect- of starting that Connected Gardens, it started off with, I think, just the four and has expanded, obviously, throughout the suburb as well. 